welcome to On the Record Podcast. This week, we are going to be talking about abortion. And right here, we have Anthony Grimmick, who, who is our uh, NCC Democrat. We have Professor Barnes, who is going to be our professor of gender studies. We have Meg Atherton, who is going to be our Feminist Society Vice President. We have Sean Kim Butorek, who is going to be our professor of law and legal studies. And we also have Sydney Yurt, who's going to be our NCC Republican person. So hello, everyone. Thank you for being here. Um, first, we want to get started with asking questions for Professor Butorek. So first of all, we want to start off by asking, why is there a need for regulation of abortions? Specifically, what's the history of why this needed to be brought up in the courts? Sure. So just start, I mean, it's worth edifying that abortion has always been a common medical practice. It's existed um, since ancient Greece and ancient Rome. And really in the common law tradition in the West, the fetus was widely regarded as part of the mother. And so abortion was, was generally legal within the first trimester, um, even in the very early common law tradition throughout most of the West. And it was really only in the 19th century um, that the first criminal penalties for ab abortion actually emerged. And so in the late... 19th century, we start to see some heightened penalties. And it's really only by the, the late 1950s in the US that most jurisdictions had eventually banned abortion except under life-threatening circumstances. So it's in this context of this sort of like slow drift toward punitive policy around abortion. Um, this creates the context for the emergence of course of second wave feminism of like, um, right, sort of like radical protest politics, and also for, for litigation around abortion. And so this is the context in which Roe v. Wade emerges. And really where the court sort of stakes out the legal concepts here is it's in terms of a right to privacy, right? In this case, reproductive rights are linked directly to the 14th Amendment and a particular interpretation that the court offers of an affirmative right to privacy. Now, there, there's actually no mention of privacy in the 14th Amendment, but the court is able to construct a right to privacy from the 14th Amendment, and particularly from the Equal Protection Clause. Now, against this affirmative right to privacy, the court's going to construct what's known as a compelling state interest. This being the, the idea that the state has important interests in safeguarding health, in maintaining medical standards, and in protecting potential life. Um, and the question of what constitutes potential life, what constitutes safeguarding public health or creating forcible medical standards, these are all of the sort of competing legal concepts that are at play now when we talk about abortion. Yes, thank you so much, Professor. And I wanted to ask you about Supreme Court cases because currently a lot of abortion cases are going to the Supreme Court. And I think as most people know about the role versus Wade, uh, Supreme Court case, the pretty well-known Supreme Court case. Can you please describe the decision after the case and the result of the Roe versus Wade? Um, and also, if you have some other Supreme Court cases, can you give us some, some examples? Yeah, absolutely. So 
part of what Roe v. Wade establishes is, is not only an affirmative right to privacy, but initially what we get in Roe in terms of establishing that legal right is what's known as the trimester framework. And basically what the trimester framework says is that in the, in the first trimester, um, the abortion decision solely has to be left to the pregnant woman and her attending physician, that the state has no compelling interest in interfering in pregnancy during the first trimester. Now, during the second trimester, if the issues this, that the state is creating laws on are reasonably related to maternal health, now the court is saying you can sort of start to step in a little bit more. And then finally, when it comes to the third trimester, that when it comes to potentiality of human life, that the state might begin to exercise more of a compelling interest that outweighs the affirmative right to privacy. The exception being, unless there are any cases involving the preservation of the health or life of the mother. Now, generally, when we talk about the right to abortion and reproductive rights today, you're absolutely right. We, we think about Roe v. Wade. What's really important to note, though, is actually in Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1992, the court actually throws out the trimester framework. And what we get instead is in response to an earlier Texas abortion law, actually in the 90s, which creates a, a oh no, I'm sorry, in Philadelphia. I misspoke. Philadelphia. The court uh, examines a series of new policies that this law implemented, including a 24-hour waiting period, need for informed consent, a husband's consent in cases involving married couples. And basically, the court looks at this law. It upholds parts of the law, including um, the 24-hour sort of waiting period, the need to give informed consent. And the reason the court does this while throwing out having to receive consent from one's husband has to do with this idea of an undue burden, right? Whether or not a particular law restricts access or impedes access to an abortion rather than facilitating the exercise of that right. So in the case of something like affirmative consent, the court would say, okay, by requiring affirmative consent, in effect, what the law is doing is actually facilitating the informed access to abortion in this case. And so this is historically now the kind of constitutional context in what, which we're living when it comes to abortion is the court is trying to weigh and figure out what constitutes an undue burden when it comes to accessing abortion. And likewise, right, at what point does a compelling state interest limit or infringe upon a woman's right to privacy? Thank you. And we also wanted to know, speaking more into the present tense of what's going on right now in the political atmosphere, we wanted to ask you more about the Texas abortion case that's going on right now, because there's a lot of positives and temporary bans on it. And a lot of moving parts are going on right now. But can you please give us a brief overview of what it's like right now in Texas? What's going on? Why are there pauses and unpauses going on and what does it mean? Yeah, so part of what makes the Texas case both fascinating and also very difficult to understand has to do with the um, enforcement mechanism that this law uses. So basically what the Texas law does is it enacts what, it, what amounts to a total ban on abortion after six weeks. And this is the, the earliest ban that we've, we've seen up to this point. This isn't unique though. So this sort of heartbeat heartbeat ban bill as they're generally referred to have been tested out in about, I think 15 different states at this point. And all of those heartbeat ban bills, because they fall before the 23 week mark that still holds from Roe, all have some sort of stay or injunction that the court has basically said, these are not enforceable laws because they violate Roe. And the way that these injunctions have been issued is they basically say, lawyers, judges, state state officials, these individuals cannot enforce this law. 
Now, where the Texas law differs is it says that private individuals, right, everyday citizens can not only sue providers that that administer abortions, but anyone who aids or abets an abortion. So this could be the Uber driver who took you to the clinic, anyone who is implicated in aiding or abetting the abortion. They can seek damages at a minimum of $10,000. And so what makes this law so tricky then is that for the court to issue an, an injunction or a stay of the law, what they're effectively saying is that nobody in the state of Texas or beyond the state of Texas, because you don't have to be a resident of Texas to to sue under this law, all of those individuals would then be subject to this injunction as opposed to just state officials. And so it's this very peculiar enforcement structure that the law has created that the court is is now weighing um, in two cases, Whole Women's Health v. Jackson and U.S. v. Texas. And now essentially what, what's happened, and I'm sorry this is so long because it's it's very technical and it's it's frankly very confusing. In the initial trial court proceedings leading up to these two cases, there was an injunction issued against SBA. That injunction was overturned by the Fifth Circuit Court. And rather than hear and decide whether to uphold the injunction, the court the court has now let the fifth circuit circuit decision stand and they've basically said we'll provide an expedited review of these two cases but we're going to let the fifth circuit court's decision to overturn the injunction stand which basically now means that the law is enforceable and we've seen that early data indicates that at this point it looks like the number of abortions in texas has dropped off by at least half. All right. Thank you so much, Professor. And one thing I wanted to ask about for for right now is that December 1st, there'll be a Supreme Court hearing. As we all know, is that the Supreme Court right now is leaning more towards the conservative side of the politics. Do you think because the Supreme Court is more conservative, that will that will affect the way um, the court will vote? Yeah, absolutely. I think for... For court scholars, I I think we're expecting to see that the court is going to move to the right on reproductive rights. There's there's going to be some further curtailing curtailing or restriction of access to abortion. Um, I don't I don't think that's a question here. At least at least not for me in terms of where I see the trajectory of the court heading. I think what does sort of remain up for question is just how far the court is 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 going to end up moving on this question. And there's there's two sort of separate questions. So one has to do with this earlier set of cases I referred to, right? Whole Women's Health v. Jackson and US v. Texas. These have to do with whether or not the federal government can sue given the nature of the enforcement system on the Texas law, but also whether or not this enforcement system that the Texas law has created is on whether or not that's constitutional. So. That's going to be the first set of hurdles for the court to clear, right, is to figure out and determine whether or not this enforcement system is, in fact, constitutional. The second, or I guess in this case, the third case is Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. And this is um, a direct challenge to Roe because it concerns not an enforcement mechanism, but in fact, a heartbeat ban directly. Um, In this case, it's a Mississippi law that bans abortions after 15 weeks. You know, it's difficult to say where the court is is going to land on these these two sets of questions. I think we have some indication that there there will be some some rollback, some erosion of access to abortion. 
what complicates it are particularly questions of, of court legitimacy here. Historically, the court has been unwilling to move too far too fast on controversial social issues, particularly where there is settled jurisprudence around those issues. In large part, the trajectory of the court since Roe has been to roll back the right and limit access to abortion fairly consistently with some exceptions. Um, and this will be the next sort of big set of tests to see how far the court is willing to go or, or not go and continuing to limit access to abortion. Mr. Barnes. We wanted to ask you how abortion is seen as a woman's rights issue because we've heard many talks of people saying this is not a woman's issue, that this is simply just a political issue. Um, but we wanted to ask you about that, if it's a woman's rights issue. Hello, Tabby. Thank you for having me on, on the record. Uh, it, uh, that's a very fair question, but it's also a very, and I understand why people might say it's not just a woman's issue, it's a more of a political issue because of the hyper-partisan environment in which America has been subjected to over the past <laughs> four years uh, during the uh, Trump administration. Um, but for me as a uh, gender and sexuality studies professor, um, I al always wanna speak to um, pr how privilege uh, plays a role into uh, women's gender and sexuality issues uh, in the classroom and beyond, um, which we're talking about today with abortion. I think of, I think of abortion in this way, to frame the, to answer your question. I think of gender pronouns. My gender pronouns are he, him, and they, uh, because I think about they as bringing the voices of trans, gender non-conforming, non-binary, uh, same gender loving people who have fought for uh, the long history of civil rights, which include to Professor Butorek's uh, point about reproductive rights and being a constitutionally protected right under the 14th Amendment and due process. People who have, fought early on for women's rights uh, have gone unnamed, uh, such as Fannie Lou Hamer, Marsha P. Johnson, um, um, I.B. Wells, people who have fought for uh, rights pertaining to uh, what we talk about in my class uh, and in gender sexuality studies, intersectionality, right? This idea of overlapping or intersecting social categories and identities relative to race, gender, sexuality, disability, socioeconomic status, uh, especially in America where uh, not all women are considered women ba based on a history of misgendering as well as uh, a history of a standard of beauty around what is feminine, right? Um, so. Women's rights issues, I would say women's rights issue to kind of return to the beginning of the question is, I would say a human right issue, a, a reproductive rights issue, a civil rights issue, and a, uh, as well as a uh, gender rights issue. So if, it were, if we're not talking about uh, abortion and access to abortion as a, as a healthcare right, we're not necessarily being inclusive all the voices that are trans masculine of uh, who are uh, trans non-binary who need reproductive uh, justice and reproductive reproductive freedom that are being threatened in uh, the 15 or so states uh, to Professor Butor's point about uh, the Texas law and the upsetting the history and decades of uh, jurisprudence around Roe v. Wade, um, even going back to uh, Griswold v. Connecticut um, in the 1960s, I believe, as well as Lawrence v. Texas, um, which were found, which Griswold v. Connecticut was foundational to being cited in the concurrent opinion for Roe v. Wade that helped to really uh, 
settled what should be settled law <laughs> around reproductive rights and abortion. Um, in the state of Texas, the, the state of Texas is, is, is very much a, a, a ground zero when it comes to uh, fighting for uh, not only uh, against anti-sodomy laws, as well as uh, anti-trans laws, as well as uh, anti-abortion laws. So there's a long history of where Texas has uh, dug its heels into uh, kind of a religious and political conservative uh, culture war against being progressive in terms of its citizens' citizens rights concerning reproductive access to access to health care as well as access to uh, abortion as health and health care as a right. Yes, um, thank you. Now the next question I wanted to ask is how are the legal cases of abortion like the Texas law right now? How are these going to impact women? I think the best way to answer that question, Fred, is uh, I'm thinking about uh, Representative Cory Bush from the state of Missouri, who uh, in the September session of Congress, uh, September 30th, uh, she testified before the House Oversight Committee, um, as well as Representative uh, Pramila Jaipal and uh, Representative Barbara Lee from the state of uh, California and Representative Pramila Jaipal from the uh, state of Washington. The legal um, aspects of the, the the SB8 law in Texas will impact women's rights. Cori Bush said it this way. She she answered, she she answered the, that she was testifying before Congress about being a survivor of sexual assault. She survivors of sexual assault, and this is is pertinent to. Uh, the month we're currently um, in October being Domestic Violence Awareness Month, as well as uh, Intimate Partner Violence Month, uh, Awareness Month. Um, it's important to talk about how amplify the voices of women who have been survivors, right? Whether those traumas have been sexual assault, whether they be domestic violence, and specifically um, uh, when the when state interests uh, infringes upon the uh, privacy or the equal rights of women, whether they be cisgender women or trans women or trans non-binary people who have the ability to become uh, pregnant. When their rights are infringed upon by the state and whether they be survivors or not, they have they, they should not have to, uh, to relive their trauma in order to forward uh, progress in terms of justice. For healthcare is a right. I mean, this is a conversation that came up uh, during the Obama administration, where a number of <laughs> Republicans and conservatives, religious and political conservatives, I'll, I'll say that uh, specifically, because this argument about abortion seems to be framed as a moral art. But it, the reality is, is it moral to take away the rights of people to to bodily autonomy? Right. That's the issue when we come, when it comes down to the legal proceedings, when uh, how the state uh, and governor Governor Abbott is. Uh, forwarding uh, the uh, SB8 law, um, those legal proceedings and those those laws disparately impact women's uh, who who are survivors and who are not survivors in terms of um, accessing uh, safe abortions. Because whether whether we as a society here in America want to admit it or not, uh, abortion um, again, hearkening back to what Professor Butorik already said, abortion has always been. Uh, a part of a human society, right? It's always been a, a, a part of medical practice. Only within recent memory in the, during the 18th and 19th century around uh, the institutionalization of gynecological examinations and uh, medical experimentation on enslaved women's bodies have those uh, 
rights been forwarded for a specific class of people, specifically uh, affluent white uh, women who benefit from industrial and in the industrialization of me medical of medicine as an institution, whereas people who are uh, lower class, working poor, uh, who are marginalized based on race, sexuality, uh, or socioeconomic status, are not able to access those uh, services because of those socioeconomic, socioeconomic barriers and legal barriers. Thank you, Professor Barnes. And you also wanted to know how the length of time a woman is pregnant is linked to abortion, specifically when talking about, for example, the Texas abortion case that's going on right now. Why is it so important about those specific time periods of 15 weeks and 16 weeks? And more specifically, we're asking, why is it not enough time for women with the abortion proceedings? That's a very good question. And uh, I think Professor Butorek um, laid a very good groundwork in terms of the legal framework and the uh, legal um argument around uh, the trimester, the trimester framework, I believe Professor Patorik said. Um, this, this is something that um, has, comes up often, quite often in terms of uh, women being able to access uh, health healthcare in terms of abortion as healthcare. Um, if you are unaware that you have, may have minced a menstrual cycle and the state has passed, say, in the state of Mississippi or the state of Missouri or the state of Texas, specifically as we're talking about here on the podcast, has decided that six weeks or um, uh, or 15 weeks or 16 weeks is beyond what is called the fetal viability or the heartbeat bills um, uh, that, have, that are trying to be passed or have been implemented in some form or another. Um, that disparately impacts women because if you are unaware that you have missed a menstrual cycle, or if you, you, as, you as a woman have a, uh, you may have a chronic illness such as uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome, a piece also known as PCOS, or you have uterine fibroid uterine fibroids. Um, if you have irregular periods, right, um, that idea of missing your period and then you not being aware of that and you then finding out through a um, uh, medical visit to your primary care physician. If you miss, if you find out you are um, uh, pregnant and you've missed a period and you, you are a, per, a person living with those chronic illnesses, those are important factors in terms of accessing medical care, right? If you are, also if you are a woman who's a domestic worker, you're an essential worker <laughs> and you don't have access to medical care because you, you're, you, you are a part-time worker, or um, this is, again, speaking about the socioeconomic uh, factors of uh, reproductive care and reproductive justice on uh, access to healthcare as a right, and abortion is healthcare. Um, if you uh, have to make a decision between paying for childcare and you have, you know, and you are, have, you have a chronic illness such as uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome or uterine fibroids, and you go to your annual visit, um, or you don't have access to healthcare and you rely upon services like Planned Parenthood who are being directly threatened by uh, SB8, right? These, these particular bills in these state uh, states uh, that are forwarding this idea of um, attacking uh, healthcare, abortion as healthcare. You have, now you become subject to legal barriers. Again, you become subject to these, uh, what's called the, these, uh, the $10,000 uh, civil suit or bounty, right? That's a dangerous uh, space to be in when you're already a marginalized person, right? When you're, you're not only facing now decisions based upon socioeconomic status, but now you're facing legal barriers in courts. 
So that and that which which ultimately figure into the prison industrial complex, right? So there's a lot of overlapping um, or interlocking uh, what the Combahee River Collection talks about interlocking uh, systems of oppression regarding uh, women's rights. Yes, thank you so much. And I know that you have already shared some examples of some women who um, testified about their experience. Can you share some bit histories about illegal abortions in the 60s and share some example of other women who um, wrote or who, who shared their experience about, how, about abortion? Oh, thank you for that question. One of the a really great examples I talk about quite frequently in my coursework on campus dealing with, we talk about narrative as a way of healing and as, as a form of storytelling in terms of amplifying, again, the voices of women across the gender spectrum. Um, one particular voice that comes to mind and I talk about quite frequently is Ntozaki Shange's book for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow was enough. In her book, uh, Antazaki Shange talks about a woman who ex experiences what was frequently called back alley abortions. And this is something that Representative Barbara Lee from the state of California talked about and during her uh, her testimony before the House Committee Oversight, uh, House Oversight Committee, excuse me, in September, this past September, September 30th. That example of back alley abortion during the 1960s or what's called unsafe abortions is what is the, uh, the real palpable uh, and fear that once these bills do have some form of enforcement, that is what women uh, are facing who don't have access to care, that these unsafe abortions will become the, the norm once again, once for women who face socioeconomic and legal barriers. Safe abortions will always be accessible to people who are affluent, right? Communities who are affluent and well, but for um, uh, women who, again, as I've mentioned before, that, that face those economic, socioeconomic and legal barriers based on race, gender, sexuality, unsafe abortions, they are, uh, we, that is what the fear is, not returning to that norm of the 1960s, 1950s, where uh, women who are Black, Indigenous, or people of color face the uh, socioeconomic hurdles and barriers of accessing healthcare as a right. Thank you, Professor Barnes. And honestly, these next two questions that we're about to ask, in my opinion, are one of the most important questions to ask in this entire podcast because a lot of people don't know this. I didn't know this going into this, so I wanted to just share that bit, bit of, of knowledge. But can you please elaborate more about the role of women's socioeconomic status and how that might contribute to our talk about abortion? I know you've already mentioned it a bit, but I just wanted to give you space to be able to mention it or talk about it just a little bit more. Okay, sure. Um, so socioeconomic status, um, I'm thinking again about uh, Representative Corey Bush's testimony, um, and I, I'm, I'm referring back to these uh, stories because they um, are the lived experiences, the everyday lived experiences of women who um, have have gone, who have gone through, right, who have lived through this particular, these sets of traumas, right? Um, Corey Bush talked about being not only an activist a mother, a representative now of uh, US Congress, but also a pastor, right? When you think about the emotional labor, you think about the intellectual labor, you think about the how women as a black indigenous and people of women of color, people of color, trans 
as well as cis women. When you, you think about how women face not only the economic barriers of gender equity and pay in, in terms of the, the what's called in sociology, it's called the or it's called the, the motherhood track, right? Where you're or the, the motherhood tax where you're penalized for taking time off work to take care of your children, right? Because it's assumed that women, that taking care of children is women's work, right? However, the states, Texas in particular, as we're talking about, is seeking to undermine women's right to choose how to take care of their own bodies, right? Bodily autonomy now has become a part of this conversation regarding how women navigate through the world, move through our US, move through US society, right? Policymakers do not either, and I won't say what I really want, what I'm really thinking or feeling right now, but <laughs> policy policymakers really need to listen to the voices of of women, right? Women who are not only in seats of power, right, in, in Congress, who are in seats of power and and not just not just institutional power, but women in everyday life, women who are uh, building power from the ground up, right? Women like Cori Bush, who are who started, started off their career as an activist, um, as a pastor, and now fighting for women's rights across the board in terms of access to healthcare, right? We're talking about this bill being passed during an ongoing pandemic, right? Many people have have joined the Great Resignation. Women, women by and large, out outnumber men in the workforce, outnumber men in terms of educational and advanced degrees, yet face the um, the economic barrier of gender equity and pay, right? So if you as a person who is a woman or a person who is trans or gender non-conforming and you face discrimination in the workplace based on your sexuality, based on your sexual orientation, based on your gender identity or gender pronouns, now you're not only facing that particular hurdle, right, in the workplace, you're also facing discrimination uh, and pay, you're facing a the, the social impact of how to take care of yourself economically. So if you have to make a choice between bringing your whole self to your job or bringing your whole self to an interview in order for you to, to access healthcare through your through an employer, right? If you can't uh, create your own revenue streams <laughs> through being entrepreneur, you you have to be uh, dependent upon some economic system, right? And if the economic system in which we are we we are currently existing uh, does not value women's work as valuable and equal to being equally protected under the law, constitutionally speaking, uh, when it comes to medical care, medical coverage, and health care as a right, and abortion as health care, that's the socioeconomic barriers that we're talking about. And go back to what Tabi was saying. You already mentioned the next question I'm about to ask, but I think it's important so that we could get a clear understanding of it. I wanted to ask you, how might race, sexuality, and LGBTQI plus communities play a factor in the reproductive movement? That's a very good question. And thank you for following up with Tabby's question, Fred. I would say the LGBTQI community has always played a role, <laughs> right? Uh, I mentioned at the beginning uh, questions tonight, how bringing the voices of those who uh, fought for civil rights, reproductive rights, trans rights, gay rights is important to reproductive rights. Because when I think about uh, Marsha P. Johnson, uh, this is LGBTQIA History Month as well as Domestic Violence Month and Intimate Partner Vi uh, Violence Awareness Month, as well as Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Those overlapping uh, issues of access to healthcare as a right, abortion as healthcare, uh, access to reproductive rights, meaning do you as a person who identify, 
who may or may not identify as trans or gender non-conforming or non-binary, if you have, need access to hormone replacement therapy, or if you so choose to pursue sexual reassignment surgery, or fighting for those rights as uh, being protected in terms of healthcare, right? If you are in the LGBTQIA plus community and you uh, do not see yourself being equally protected, right? Or see your, um, your, your, your cis counterparts being protected, right? <laughs> in terms of access to abortionist healthcare, for, it's for certain that the state's interest does not care about your rights as an LGBTQIA person, right? Um, it's, there's a, I forgot the, the quote and who it comes from, but it goes, if, if they come for you in, in, in the daytime, if they come for you at night, they'll come for you in the daytime as well, right? I might be misquoting that. But the idea is that I'm, I'm getting to is if the state's interest is not concerned about protecting the rights of a specific type of woman, right? A specific type of femininity, right? A specific type of gender expression gender identity or um, gender pronouns or sexual orientation, then those particular groups who have been fighting uh, for healthcare in terms of uh, against the stigma of HIV and AIDS, fighting against the stigma of not only the stigma, the, re the real reality of trans women being murdered, Black trans women specifically, um, these are the women and the communities, uh, and I'm speaking about the LGBTQIA plus community, that have been on the front lines fighting for civil rights, gender rights, equal rights. And I'm thinking about right now, uh, the non-binary binary, uh, legal scholar, Pauli Murray, um, who fought for not, who was the foundational thinker and writer, not only for uh, Brown versus Board of Education, uh, as well as the uh, Gender Equality Act, right? That, that non-binary people have always been the hidden figures in the history of fighting on the front lines for um, civil rights, and civil rights being reproductive rights and reproductive rights being human rights. And whether those rights are constitutionally protected is what we're talking about, right? For those particular marginalized communities, right? It's important for us who have privileged in these spaces that were um, specific to this podcast to speak truth to power, to bring those voices from the margins to the center. Okay, so we're gonna be going on into then questions from the feminist society. So Meg, Hi, our vice president. Thank you so much for being here. Woo. We wanted to start off by asking you, can you please define what feminism is and what it um, to our audience? Because a lot of people have a lot of different questions and a lot of different feelings about that. So can you please share with us what that means? Okay, I think um, Nigerian writer Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie said it best in her TED talk, we should all be feminists. Um, quote, a person who believes in the social, political, and economic equality of the sexes. I feel like that's a very well-rounded definition. So, Yes, thank you so much, Meg, and thank you for that beautiful quote. And I wanted to ask you, because that's something I think I can relate to as a man. I wanted to know, um, should men have a say in abortion? This question actually made me think a lot. I feel like if a man and a woman are in a relationship and the woman is on the fence of whether or not she should get, she's like considering it, but she's not quite sure, her male partner can sit down with her and be like, okay, let's talk about all of our options. But at the end of the day, it is still the woman's decision. 
Um, I feel like that's the one instance where a man could have a say, but like if it's just like a male politician who does not know this woman at all, he should not have a say. Thank you. And we also wanted to know, following up with that, if with being a feminist, if your stance on abortion is something that defines whether or not you are or are not a feminist or can identify as that. There are so many issues when it comes to feminism. Um, and now with the rise of intersectional feminism, it's not just about women. Like feminists are taking on like race, race issues and like sexuality issues as well. So the under the umbrella of feminism, abortion is... I would say one of the top, but it's not the defining issue. But at the end of the day, um, feminism is all about inclusion. So even if a pro, someone who is pro-life says that they are a feminist, in my personal opinion, I know that there are some people who say, if you are anti-abortion, then you're not a feminist. But I think that feminism is all about inclusion, so I wouldn't exclude them if they believe that, like, women should get equal pay and whatnot. All right. Thank you so much, Meg. And I wanted to ask you, um, this might be personal, and please let me know if you do not want to answer. Um, How has this um, debate on abortion affected you being a feminist? Okay, so I was raised Catholic, so I was raised very much pro-life, and then around the 2016 election was when I started really getting into politics. And so I listened to a podcast and it was like, oh, about it was about feminism. And it was basically like, oh, if you're not pro-choice, then you're not a feminist. And so I was raised pro-life. And so I was like, oh, am I am I not a feminist then? So then I just went through this whole downward spiral, I guess, and like doing a lot of my own research. Why, it, why do you think Um, the feminist group take on the debate of pro-life and pro-choice? There's not one reason why a woman gets an abortion. Like I have been listening to the, the daily, the New York times podcast, and they have done a few stories about this Texas abortion law and just interviewing women who are going through abortions and just like talking about their stories. Like it's all, it's just, it's a very, hard decision for anyone. So I feel like women who are willing to make this choice, there's just a lot of difficulty around abortion and being a woman. I kind of wanted to answer the question. I think it ties into a lot of what Professor Barnes and Professor Protek has been speaking about with the intersectionality of women and what it means to be a woman. And so I think that with abortion, I think it's become a defining factor of being a feminist because a lot of people say that to have a baby is to be a woman. And now that we're seeing stories of women's, women say, no, actually, there's much more than just having a baby that does that does not make up or define being a woman and so for me I think that it's taken on feminist ideals and a debate within the region because it's very hard for women sometimes I think to see another woman having a different stance as her and you know understanding why does why different women think differently and we all think that it's a monolith when reality is that because of the different races of women it's not really a monolith in fact, women vote differently, they think differently. And so I think that is something that we see a lot of in feminism. Can I, oh, I was just going to say, going back to the original question, how has this debate on abortion affected you being a feminist? I feel like it 
led me into a deep dive to become even more of a feminist. Okay, so the reason that I changed from pro-life to pro-choice, I, I tell the story quite frequently. Um, I read a, a news article. I don't remember what source it was from. This was years ago. Um, but it was about a girl in Mexico who was about 13 years old. She died on her bedroom floor because she tried to give herself an at-home abortion because at the time um, abortion was not legal in Mexico. And so this was her only option. And so that kind of made me realize like, oh, you may be, some people may say that you, you are killing one life, but if it's done improperly, you could lose two lives. And that, that just put me over the edge. All right. Okay, now we're going to move on to the Sydney and also Anthony. Those um Sydney's representing the NC Republicans and she's the president. And we have Anthony who's representing the NC Democrats, who's also the vice president, who's the vice president. And I wanted to start with um Sydney first, and then Anthony, you can answer after Sydney. How does being a Democrat or Republican ship your view on abortion? So Addressing Meg's original point and some of what she was touching on, religion does play a large factor in where we come from, especially in regards to uh, the abortion debate and any conversations about that. Uh, personally, um, I don't only come from a place of religion because I feel like the separation of church and state is definitely something that we need to consider, especially in regards to this. We can't go through our government in religious ways. I, I think that's something we just need to establish. That just shouldn't be a thing. Now, as I do come from a religious sort of aspect from it, uh, I do believe that the fetus is indeed a life. Uh, and But as uh, someone who looks at it in a more political science, uh, limited government, uh, more partisan member, I see it a more of a rights issue to me and many others. Uh, they're still lives with their own DNA, such where they're deserved every chance at a life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, uh, just as much as the woman herself. However, coming from a limited government standpoint, uh, I don't enjoy the idea of the government reaching into our lives and telling us what we can and can't do with our bodies. I don't think the government has any place with that, um, but I do believe that the state has an important role to play, especially in regards to helping a possible life go to term through that. Um, and there's different ways in which to address that, of course, and I don't agree with all of them. I think it needs to go back to the original idea. And when we talk about a lot of these bills, it needs to go back to the idea of abortion being safe, legal, and rare. To me, it's a necessary evil, unfortunately, because an outright ban on it, it would cause egregious harm to many people, I'm sure. The unsafe abortions, of course, I would never want to encourage those. So those definitely a safe, legal and rare abortion needs to be something there. I may not personally take advantage of that, but if somebody needs that, then there should be access to that. Um, I just don't necessarily agree that it should be an easy access. Um, it's still very much a harsh surgical procedure in some cases. Uh, and I don't necessarily know if this Texas law addressed anything. Um, I'm not super well versed on it, but I heard a one of the workarounds or some of the loopholes for what they were looking at 
was a doctor or the providing doctor of the abortion would need admitting admitting privileges at a hospital nearby. I think it was in like 30 minutes or so. Uh, to me, that seemed a little bit reasonable because sometimes these things can go wrong, especially uh, in the cases of late-term abortions, uh, whether that be in cases of rape, incest, of course, those are unfortunate situations in cases of harm to the mother, definitely. Um, personally, though, as a Republican and someone who is Christian, um, I do see it from a life standpoint. Unfortunately, my religious argument isn't enough and should not be enough to change the government's standpoint, especially from a religious aspect. Um, now it does depend on what we consider is uh, viability, you know? So there's many arguments going back to uh, Professor Butorak's point, vitality or vitality, viability is one of the key factors of this because what is viability it depends on where you are in the world are you in mexico are you in new york are you wealthy are you poor it depends on all these different factors let alone just a heartbeat because i mean fetus that baby still has the heartbeat it still has its own dna uh, it may have feeling it may have hair fingers everything it's still very much a person unfortunately and the state would have in my opinion, a vested interest in keeping its individuals safe. Um, now, granted, the way that that government does that is not always in the best way. Unfortunately, we're not in a perfect world. So, and this is such a complex issue involving so many different things that was as we've talked about, it's all intersectional. There's so many things that we need to address in this and it's not just one concrete answer. So, it takes so much talking on both sides to be able to get to a decent answer about this. And I, it, there's so many things to talk about. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. And I think one whose answer has changed over the past several decades as the party line on the issue of abortion has moved and the party's influence on voter behavior has as well as a result. Uh, if you look back to the 1990s with the Clinton administration, I mean, the, the Democratic Party position was what Sydney referenced, safe, legal, and rare, pays service kind of to the sort of autonomy that we have talked about uh, for women and their medical decisions. But at the same time, it also is, you know, it, it acknowledge it tries to paint sort of a, uh, a, a moral aspect to the practice of abortion. And recently, this has changed quite a bit. Uh, I mean, Joe Biden, who is president, has a very mixed record on abortion. Recently, he's called the Texas bill, I think a direct quote is un-American, and polling over decades has shown Democrats shifting uh, quite a bit to the left on the issue. So uh, where once abortion wasn't quite as partisan, now it is. And I think uh, the effect it has on the beliefs of Democratic voters shifts accordingly. So, you know, I'm on here speaking on this issue that, let's be blunt, does not directly affect me at all. Uh, and yet there's still these cues that I pick up from party leaders uh, that this issue says something about autonomy, privacy, and the power of marginalized groups, and it encourages me and other voters to act on that interest. Thank you so much, Anthony and Sydney. I wanted to ask you guys if you believe this should be a bipartisan issue. I wish it would be. Um, unfortunately, everything right now is black or white. There's no in between and nobody can have a discussion about it. Um, I, I feel bad that it's become overgeneralized to pro-choice or pro-life. Um, I hear a lot of arguments on my side, not, not necessarily, but I hear a lot of like, 
uh, I guess, less educated right wingers or uh, conservative leaning thought critics or anything like that uh, saying, oh, they're pro-abortion. Uh, and, and that's not the case. Uh, I mean, these are very tough situations that these women are going through. Of course, we need to have empathy for those. That's a very tough topic to talk about. So limiting it to just pro-life or pro-choice uh, is to diminish the idea at all. It's diminishing the conversation that we're having. It's pitting us versus them. And that's where you see this polarization coming from when that's most likely not the case for anybody. I think we all can agree that the government should not, I mean, I hope, I hope we can all agree that the government should not be telling me what to do with my uterus. I don't care, like that just shouldn't be happening. However, what's in that uterus does matter. Um, now, if a doctor were trying to, or if the government were trying to tell me what to do with like my personal health or anything like that, or my doctor's appointments or anything that has to do directly impacting me as a person without, without the idea of one inside of me or inside of somebody else, and it just being a soul, like soul one person, uh, then that's something else the government shouldn't be involved in that. We've touched on this uh, earlier with answers from Professor Barnes and Butorek about the history of abortion uh, as a hotly contested issue. And I mean, if you go back to, I mean, Ronald Reagan, who was an extremely conservative president, when he served as governor of California, he actually loosened a lot of abortion restrictions. Uh, and then it's not really until the 1970s with the decision in Roe, and then especially in 1994 with the Republican Revolution and Newt Gingrich, that you start to see I think, a lot of these sharply divided lines along party about uh, regarding the issue of abortion. So I, I don't think there's necessarily any issue that has to be partisan, but the current trajectory of American politics, I think, is that that is the case. And I don't know of any mechanism that could necessarily prevent it. Uh, I was just going to add one more thing uh, that's adding to the multidimensional image of this, let alone being intersectional with it. I think a big aspect of this too is education and educating the women on their bodies alone in increasing such sex education, not teaching the abstinence only sort of thing. Like that is such a big thing. Ed education is such a big thing. And, and I see everybody's uh, nodding their heads and I'm loving it. I'm loving it. But I think this is another aspect that we need to address out of this. Um, a, a lot of times from the religious argument of this, and this is why I don't like to apply it, especially to this argument. Um, I don't know too many, I guess, harsh Christians who are very like, yes, we need to teach about uh, sex education in school. They're very, oh, just teach them not, like, don't do it and it'll fix everything. I think that's unrealistic to think that, I mean, teenagers and kids don't see this stuff every day and sometimes they do and that's just the times that we live in unfortunately we need to adapt to those because those are situations that we're seeing more often we're seeing these situations of uh, rape very young in middle schools and everything and these children these young girls don't know how to address that so i mean I, I, some of them i'm sure don't even know what sex is so that's an important part of this, and that's an important part that the education system plays a major role in as well in uh, getting some things sorted out with that.
Yeah, and I just wanted to add on real quick also that I don't I haven't done too much research on this, but I do think that in Texas, based on what I've heard and what I've seen, is that they don't really teach sex education in girls. So they don't really know how to prevent pregnancies, which is the main reading unplanned pregnancies is one of the main reasons why people get abortions because they don't have the necessary they don't have the money, they're too young, they, you know, and they think a lot of women say that afterwards, they actually say that that was a really good choice for them, because then they learn later on how to be a good mother and provide for their children later on. Whereas they couldn't do that in the very beginning when they're like 16, 15 years old. And I think that's something that's very important back to your point, Sydney, that it should not just be a religious thing, it should also be an educational thing, because you cannot prevent unplanned pregnancies without the necessary education. That's not just abstinence, because abstinence, well, it is 100% effective in not getting pregnant. It's not the only choice women have. And some women are not even aware of that. And we need to also have conversations about things that men can do because it falls heavily on burden to be prepared and to be safe during intercourse. And I think this are conversations that, and, you know, societally need to talk about this as if it is really a woman's burden to have to be protected in sex and how men can also help prevent getting a woman pregnant. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And um, I know that you all have said that um, it shouldn't be, it's not just pro-choice and pro-life, but um, before, it, before we leave today, I wanted to get an understanding of what pro-choice and pro-life mean in your political party. Um, pro-life, I can say that I'm sure the majority of Republicans most likely align themselves with um, whether they come from a religious uh, sort of aspect to it or just a limited government aspect to it. I think pro-life just means that you consider what is in that woman's uterus as a life. Uh, you see that as an individual of its own, one that is worthy of protection, whether that be uh, under the rights of God, under the rights of the government, uh, under the rights of whoever. Uh, I think that's what pro-life means. That's what pro-life means to me. Now, pro-life may mean other things to other people. Um, I can only speak for myself, unfortunately. I wish the whole crew were here. Um, but personally, just for me, pro-life just means that you see that as an individual who is who has the potential, who is a human being, whether they're born or not. Uh, I think broadly speaking, Democrats would probably define being pro-choice as uh, referring to the idea that government officials should not or aren't even qualified to take legislative action regulating abortion. Uh, you know, the idea that what is best for the health and well-being of a woman is something that should not be decided in Washington, D.C. or state legislative houses, but in a conversation between a woman and her doctor. So I, uh, because I was raised Catholic, personally, I am pro-life, but like as a whole, I am pro-choice. And so someone asked me like, oh, like if you're pro-choice, like why would you like never consider having an abortion? And I, I just said like, being pro-choice isn't necessarily like pro-death. Like the opposite of pro-life is not pro-death. It is pro-having every single option possible. So just the extra option of abortion is there, but not everyone will choose that option. Thank you so much to everyone on here. And I hope that you learned so much from each other. So thank you.